You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and then if you've got kids that are a part of our younger kids class, they can be dismissed to the back with Miss Jessica. She'll be taking them. Genesis chapter 6, uh, we began last week uh, looking at the, the environment, the setting that ultimately leads to God's great flood, and uh, we want to continue in that this morning as we look at God's provision for mankind through the salvation of Noah. So we turn our attention to verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6 after describing the great evil uh, Moses directs our attention now to the exception. He says in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. Help us to see the glory of Christ in the salvation of Noah and his family. God, we thank you for your commitment to the gospel, a commitment that you made before the beginning of time, a commitment that you continue to hold to, a gospel plan that you continue to carry out. Father, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged this morning as we see back into the past a time when you were faithful to the gospel faithful to your people. Help us to be encouraged today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw last week here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 that ultimately sin has led to the destruction and the, the ultimate death of mankind. That that Adam and Eve had, had started a chain reaction that their descendants continued to rebel, continued to turn from God, continued to uh, yield themselves to their flesh rather than to God's word. We saw the the differences between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Uh, but even through the line of Seth, we see sin, we see rebellion, 
We see that as we come to God's judgment, that it's Noah and his family that remain, those that will be spared from the flood. We see that God is continually shown to be true, that, that he, he, he spoke these true words back in the Garden of Eden. And, and he said that if you sin, you will die. And he's, he's carrying out that promise now. That, that promise is now being carried out towards all of mankind. That they have sinned and they deserve destruction and death because of their sin. Satan continues to be shown to be a liar. That is, he, he leads men and women astray into sin, promising things that he can never deliver on, ultimately bringing what God has promised, death upon mankind. We saw last week specifically that there's some some unique things going on at this time when God decides to bring the flood, specifically uh, some interaction between the sons of God and the daughters of man. We talked a little bit last week about different possibilities for the identities of those two people groups. We said that some would hold that these are evil kings and rulers that are preying upon women, common women, and taking as many as they want to be their wives. We said that uh, there's some that would believe this is the merging of Seth's line with Cain's line, and so uh, as God has always commanded for his people to be separate from the world, that they are coming together as one, and so ultimately God's people are in jeopardy because they are intermingling so closely with the ungodly. And then others would take it to a another step where they would say that these are fallen angels that are now intermingling with humankind and producing an offspring that was sinful towards God and his purposes. We said that ultimately, whatever it is, and we, we talked about strengths and weaknesses for each argument, we said ultimately that whatever it is, there are parallels for us today that we should not look back to this time and say, what a wicked, evil people, and fail to see the wickedness and evil around us today. That today we have, we have the same type of things going on, the same type of perversions, whether it's through predators, whether it's through slavery, whether it's through images, graphic images that can be seen online, through movies, that, that we as a culture are just as guilty with our perversions today in this area. And, and so there's a, there's a lesson to be learned that God hates this, God despises this, and it brings God's judgment. That this type of behavior has no part with God's holiness. And so God decides to send this flood as a response to perversion, to man's evil intent, God highlights the fact that every intent of man's heart is towards evil. And on top of that, their perversion and intent for evil is all mingled with violence, our passage this morning tells us. Ultimately, it's still the same guilt that we find in the Garden of Eden. It says that um, in verse 2 of chapter 6, they took as their wives any they chose. They saw the daughters of men were attractive. It's the same that Eve did with the fruit. She saw something that was attractive and she made a decision to take despite God's forbidding it. He had forbade that type of behavior, forbade that type of fruit, but because it was attractive, because it looked good to the eyes, Eve partook. And we have the same type of uh, activity going on here. Individuals that are looking, seeing things to be attractive, determining that they're good, and operating on their own standards. It's the same for us today when we choose to sin. As we leave this week, as we have opportunities and temptations to, to yield to the flesh, if we don't find the way of escape that's promised to us in Scripture, it will ultimately be a decision where we determine something is good and attractive to us, and despite what God has said about it, we determine it to be good for us and we partake. 
And so God brings the flood in response to this. And yet he does so with some grief in his heart over it. And so we see the emotion of God contained here as, as it expresses God's regret and sorrow over man's condition. But we also see that the glory of God, while it brings judgment, also brings grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We begin a four-part series this morning on the gospel according to Noah. I want us to see the story of Noah in the context of the gospel and how our understanding of the gospel in the New Testament grows and develops from an understanding of the gospel in the Old Testament. And so it's not that that men and women were saved in two different ways. And so we're going to see the true gospel of the New Testament was ringing true in the Old Testament as well. Uh, this, This is a story that if we're not careful, we adapt things that we heard as a kid to the story as though it was part of the text. Uh, things that we, we maybe tell our kids when we tell this story. So we, so we don't turn to the text, but we're just verbally telling them the story. There are things that a lot of times we add to the story that surprisingly aren't in the story. right? It's, it's traditionally understood that Noah took about 120 years to build the ark. We understand that because God says that he's going to limit man's life now to 120 years. And so we automatically apply that number to Noah and how long it took to build the ark. And yet what we find in the text is that we're not told how long it took Noah to build the ark. We also in our minds think that as Noah is building the ark, that he's preaching to his neighbors, giving them the opportunity to come into the ark. And yet what we find in the text that we've already read this morning is that God told him exactly how many people were coming into the ark. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't also preach repentance to those around him, but God had already told him the passenger list. He'd already told him, these are the specifications for the ark because this is what I plan to put into the ark, right? We also in our minds think that, that there was a strong ridicule towards Noah as he built the ark. And that may or may not be true, but the text doesn't tell us that. And so I want us to see as we work through this, while it may not be a major point, but it's to see that the text reveals specific things to us. And to be careful, even in communicating with our children stories like this, that we're careful to identify Okay, this is where the Bible says things, and this is where we kind of speculate a little bit about that environment. Now, I believe that that Noah probably endured ridicule as he was faithful to God. I believe that he probably continued to preach repentance, and I believe it took him a long time to build this ark. Um, And we're going to see how that would have affected his faith as he moved through uh, this time in his life. One thing that I really wanted to note before we get into this, as we as we talk about Genesis, we've talked about origins and how we learn a lot about the beginning of things. In this passage, we have the origins of two important words for us to our Christian faith. That's the words grace and covenant. These two words find their origins here in the text. This is the first textual appearance of these two words in the Bible. In verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, the, the literal, translation, tr- literal translation there would be that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The, the word that we understand as grace so often in, in Scripture is found first here in Noah and the response that God gives to Noah. Secondly, we find the concept of covenant says in uh, verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. And we'll see as we come to the conclusion of the story, the covenant that God does establish with Noah. Now, while we understand these concepts, 
were going on, even in the Garden of Eden, God obviously demonstrated grace to Adam and Eve. This is the first textual appearance. So these words are appearing for the very first time in Moses' writings. And so we want to highlight that this morning as we begin. Some things that we learn about Noah that I think are important to draw upon here as we begin the journey through this text. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Four things that that I want to highlight for you real quick here. Number one, he found favor or found grace in God's eyes. Noah found favor or grace in God's eyes. Secondly, he's called a righteous man. He's called a righteous man. The third thing that we learn about Noah here is that he was blameless in his generation. And then lastly, he walked with God. He found favor or grace in God's eyes. He's a righteous man. He's blameless in his generation. And he walked with God. Now, the reason I want to highlight these things for you, because I think it's very easy for us to make some grave errors about the gospel if we're not careful here, because it's real easy to read this and think, oh, this is why Noah's saved. He's awesome, right? He's, he's righteous and blameless, and he's doing the right thing. And so God says, I'm going to kill everybody, but I can't kill this guy. Like, he's earned, he's earned salvation here. He's earned the right to not be included with these people. And if you're not careful, you read that and you you may not even pick up on the fact that what you're saying is so contrary to what we understand in the New Testament. If we're not careful, we become very legalistic here in thinking that, okay, while everybody else needs grace and needs forgiveness, Noah is in that group that earned, earned something from God, deserved something from God. And so it's real important to understand the first thing that we learn about Noah is that he found favor or grace in God's eyes. It doesn't say that he earned it, but that he found it in God's eyes. It's something that the, the way the language is worded there, it's something that was bestowed to him before any performance by him. When we understand that word for grace that's contained here in the text, the, the, the definition for it is that it's unmerited, that it's undeserved, which literally means that Noah did deserve the flood. That had God not intervened into his life, that he would have been grouped with everybody else that was going to perish. And yet what God does here is he bestows unmerited favor to Noah, not because of his performance. It's real similar to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7 to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Lest you get any idea, children of Israel, that you earned the right for you to be God's chosen people, God reminds them and says, there's nothing special about you. There's nothing about you that deserves what I'm doing towards you. It's a little frustrating because you're, you're wanting the question answered, well, why does God love Israel? And all God says is, I don't love you because you're great. I love you because I love you. And, and you, you would say to a child, well, that's not a reason for why you love something, right? And yet that's what the response is from God. I love you, 
not because of anything about you. I just simply love you and I'm honoring the oath that I've made to your descendants to keep a covenant with you. Nothing special about the children of Israel. And honestly, nothing that that Noah has done that warrants God's grace here. He is called a righteous man, which implies standing before God. But as we're going to see as we work through this text, it's a righteousness that he's not earned in himself. It's, It's a righteousness that's been gifted to him by Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus comes years and years in the future, right? Years and years in the future. And yet what we learn from Romans chapter 3 is that in God's forbearance, in his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins of people previously. While they deserved his wrath, he delayed punishment so that Christ would receive the punishment so that they could be saved. And so Noah is saved on credit here. He's, he's called a righteous man, not because of what he's done, but God can call him righteous because he knows that his son will be righteous in the future for him. We're going to see here shortly how this is the same way all of us are saved, how all of us are counted righteous, not because of us having a good week where we sin less, but because Christ has earned perfection for us because he lived obediently, perfect life and gifts us that righteousness. He's a righteous man before God, but not because of what he has done. Third, he's called a blameless man in his generation. This implies his standing before man. So this concept here is in comparison to others. So he's not perfect. He's not sinless. But when you compare Noah to his, his contemporaries, to his peers, he's blameless. Similar to how the Bible talks about Daniel, a man of integrity, a man who lived differently than those around him. Daniel's not perfect. Noah's not perfect. We're going to see that he's not perfect as we move through this story. We're going to see that he's very much like our father, Adam, who, who abuses, uh, abuses food, abuses drink, and ends up in a shameful condition. He's not much different than his great-great-great-great-grandfather. But he's blameless at that time because there's violence, there's perversion, there's evil intent, And yet what you have here is a man who is striving to live his life the way that God has revealed to him that it should be lived. He separated himself from those around him. He was different. Now, this is a a very difficult setting to be different in. Much like our culture in in Jude 15, we're told that uh, Enoch says that, that God is coming to execute judgment on all to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Right? Enoch, who lives at this time, talking about the day and age of his time, the best word he can come up with is that it's an ungodly society. And Noah lives in that society. And we highlighted the fact that beyond maybe a few family members that are about to die... He's on his own in this. He doesn't have an accountability group to go to. He doesn't have a small group to go to. His, his support group is his family, his children that he's raised, the women that they've taken to be their wives, his, his wife. That's his support group. And he remains unstained or uncontaminated from the things going on around him. We could describe him as one who is like an elder or a deacon when it comes to those qualifications. He's a man of integrity, a man of character. And then lastly, he's a man that walked with God. 
this this phrase of walking with God is also attributed to his descent or one of his descent or he's a descendant of the other man that, that walked with God, Enoch. The Bible talks about what it means to walk with God. Ephesians five two talks about walking in love. Ephesians five eight talks about walking in the light. Galatians five sixteen talks about walking in the spirit. Noah was a man that was willingly submitted to God's plan for his life. He had learned to walk with God from his ancestors. You'll remember that Enos, who is a a descendant of Adam, Enos is the one who who starts to call his family into public worship we talked about. Enos is still alive during Noah's lifetime. Remember, we talked about how this is so important to connect the fact that a lot of these guys are still alive when Noah shows up because he's got... Man after man after man in his life that can point him to the right way. That can point him to the right way. Enos can say, you know what? My my granddad, I knew him and, and, and he was in the Garden of Eden. And this is how we're supposed to live our life. So he's got men like Enos in his life. He's got uh, Enoch. He's got Methuselah. He's got his father, Lamech, a man who taught him a biblical worldview. That concept of biblical worldview, it's seeing everything around us through the way, through the lens of God's word. We know that Lamech had a biblical worldview because as he prophesies about Noah bringing rest, he says, I'm waiting and longing for my toil, the toil of my labor, the curse that I'm under to be lifted. See, Lamech connected the fact that as I work hard every day, it should not be hard. It's only hard because I'm under a curse. And so Lamech was faithfully teaching a biblical worldview to his son. And so Noah's growing up with this mindset, and he's blameless because he's clinging to the teachings of his ancestors. The, 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 the understanding here is that Noah was a spiritual giant amongst physical giants. Right? We described these, these giants in the beginning of chapter 6, these these threatening individuals who are wreaking havoc and violence upon society. And yet what we have here is a spiritual giant. Again, what he's doing, the way that he's living his life has not warranted God's grace. It's that God gave him grace, worked in his life, which is now producing this type of lifestyle. And it doesn't sound all that different, but it's drastically different. And every time I get a chance to talk with my students, I highlight this fact that that the good works that we talk about in Scripture, if they're the good works that we're supposed to be living and producing, they come after salvation. Good works don't come before salvation, right? Good works come after our salvation is what Scripture teaches us, that, that we need unmerited grace given to us by God where we're converted, the Holy Spirit is working in our life and producing good works. None of us earn God's favor by our good works. None of us get into relationship with Christ because of things that we do, because of things that we accomplish. It's by God's grace that we enter a relationship with him, and that by God's grace he works and moves in our life to produce good works. We see that playing out in the life of Noah. So let's look a little bit at the character of Noah this morning. I want you to see what it doesn't mean and what it does mean, and then we're going to ultimately conclude today by seeing that the character of Jesus, his righteousness, is far better than anything Noah could have accomplished in his life. The character of Noah, what it doesn't mean. Okay, so we're talking about a righteous man who finds favor in the eyes of God, who walks with God, he's blameless in his generation. 
Noah was not saved because of his obedience. He's not saved because in some way he had been obedient to God. And so God looks down and says, well, here's a man doing it on his own. As I punish everyone else, I'm going to save him because he's the one that figured it out. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He's not saved by his obedience. He's not saved by keeping the law. He's not saved by being a good person, by doing good works, by being gracious to others. He's not saved by those things. He's also not saved by any sacrifice or any type of worship that he performs. In Psalm chapter 51, as David is making confession for his own sin, he reminds us that it's not a, an, a physical act of worship that God desires. And in um, Psalm 51, Verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Hebrews chapter 10 also reminds us of this fact that, that Noah in no way was saved by following some pattern of, of worship. For since the law has but a sh- was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We would assume that Noah, as being a um, a man of God, being a blameless man, a righteous man, has incorporated sacrifices into his lifestyle. And the very fact that he's had to incorporate sacrifices into his lifestyle is a demonstration that he is not a perfect man. That the concept of righteousness is being used in a different way than it's being applied to Christ in the New Testament. These sacrifices would not save Noah. The fact that he has to continually offer them demonstrates that they can never save him. That they're a temporary covering. A temporary covering for a much bigger problem. So it's important for us to recognize and it's important for us as parents to to get this concept. Because if we're not careful, we unknowingly pass down a legalistic understanding of the gospel to our children. And I see it constantly at Trinity in our middle school. It's kids that have been raised to believe that performance earns their salvation in the eyes of God because they've been taught by their parents to be good boys and girls and to not be bad boys and girls, to obey the commandments of God. Right? The Ten Commandments are great. They're great. But a lot of times we push them in such a way that our kids grow up believing, if I do these things, then I'll earn eternal life which in some sense is true, the problem is they can never do these things. And if we're not careful, we raise good boys and girls that believe my performance makes me blameless when I compare myself to others. When I look around, I'm a much better boy or girl than the other boys and girls at my school. I'm a much better boy or girl than the the other boys and girls in my youth group. I'm a much better man or woman than the other men and women that I work with. 
And if we're not careful, we then conclude God will look down and give favor to me because of how I've lived my life. And that's not how Noah's saved. His, his character is not an indication that, that God owed him anything. The character of Noah. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Noah was saved. This is important. Noah was saved like every other human by faith. By faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, even as the author of Hebrews describes Noah, he describes him as a man who does not yet have the righteousness that is needed. That he's an heir of it. He inherits it down the road. That he's a man who, who in all his effort cannot attain righteousness. Instead, he gets the righteousness that all of us get that, that warrants salvation. A righteousness that comes by faith. A righteousness that is not our own. Romans chapter 4. We'll see this more as we get into um, the book of Genesis with with the... Uh, with the character of Abraham. But Romans chapter 4 takes Abraham and demonstrates to us how Old Testament salvation works. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The book ends for that statement, Abraham, David. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul is highlighting the fact that the things that we attribute to Abraham as being Big things that highlight his godly character are things that came after his salvation. That in no way did Abraham perform any act that warranted God saying, all right, you're saved now. You, you have earned my favor. We're on good terms once again. That, that you come from a line of people that rebelled against me in the garden, but you have worked your way back into favor with me. So enter fellowship with me. That's not what we have here with Abraham. It's not what we have here with Noah. For Noah, the cherubim are still standing at the Garden of Eden, and he's not permitted to come back in. He has not earned favor with God to where he can come back into his presence. He's saved on credit. He's, he's going to inherit. He is an heir of a righteousness that is not his own, the same type of righteousness that I'm hopeful for in the future. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You could put a little sub there, including Noah, right? No one means no one, not no one except for Noah. 
nobody is considered righteous because of their obedience, including Noah. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? We don't have a picture here of, of everybody in heaven around the throne room worshiping Christ. Like Revelation never mentions a bunch of people in, in, in the throne room worshiping the lamb that was slain. And then Noah's off in the corner saying, Man, I'm glad you guys had to figured it out because, you know, I didn't have to do that, right? Like, like I found favor in God's eyes with my obedience. You guys all needed the other way, right? There's, there's no boasting in heaven by Noah, right? Everybody's bowing before the Lamb of God who was slain for their sins. Noah's not in a special room because of his righteousness. He's right there with everyone else bowing before the Lamb, realizing that I am here because I'm an heir of his righteousness. I'm an heir of his righteousness. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Noah was a preacher of the righteousness that he possessed as well. We learn that in, in Peter's writings. We also find here in this text that while he's a man of righteousness, he's a preacher of righteousness, that it's based on God's word and his response to God's word. So in your notes here, in in the text back in Genesis chapter 6, we begin with Noah's mind. His mind. Noah heard God's word. Noah heard God's word. God comes to him. Verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Noah's faith is just like our faith. That that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Noah heard God's word. He comprehended it and he understood it. God gave him some specific instructions. Three things you can write down. Noah instructed, or God instructed Noah to build an ark. Noah was instructed to trust God for salvation. And Noah was instructed to gather life. He was instructed to build an ark. He was instructed to trust God for salvation. He was instructed to gather life. We begin with Noah being instructed to build an ark. And here's what's probably important to to point out because it's relevant for us today. Enoch is a man that walked with God. Enoch didn't build an ark. Right? God spared him from the judgment. Enoch doesn't stay here. He doesn't traverse through that judgment. God says, you know what? Come home and be with me. I'm going to spare you from this. Noah walks with God. God says, you know what? You're staying here. You're staying here and you're going to put the pieces back together after my judgment comes. And it's important for us to realize that God works differently in the lives of his people, right? Remember, we, we highlighted a few weeks ago when, when Peter gets his chance to reaffirm Jesus on the beach, you know, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. He gets three opportunities to affirm Jesus after he's denied him three times. God, Jesus graciously says, you know what? Uh, in, in the presence of your peers, I'm going to let you affirm me since you denied me. They're walking along the beach and, and Jesus says, you know, Peter, you're going you're gonna to die. You're going to die for me. 
which sounds like a, a bad thing, but for Peter, it was probably an encouraging thing because it's telling Peter, you're not going to deny me and walk away from me. You're actually going to persevere to the end and you're going to die for me. And Peter looks around and says, what about John? What about John? Like, what's going to happen to John? Jesus says, don't worry about John. We got, we got two people here who are walking with God. One gets to go to heaven and be with, with Christ. The other has to stay and live on an ark for over a year. Right? And he has to gather all these animals and has to work hard and build an ark. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But I know God that God works differently. And so for us today, there's some of us that go through trials and circumstances that other of us don't. And it's very tempting to say, why am I going through this and somebody else isn't? God has different plans for us. God had different plans for Enoch. God had different plans for Noah. Both of these guys walking with God, both of them get different destinies for the time being both of them end up together before the throne room of christ but they get different destinies right now one gets to go early one has to stay and weather the storm in looking at the instructions for the ark a conservative side so there's not real agreement about the length of a cubit because the cubit varied in length Based on the culture that you were in, and there was some varying sizes of what a cubit was. It was typically from the elbow to the end of the hand. If we go off a conservative estimate of a cubit being a, a cubit being about 18 inches, then the ark would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. When you account for the three decks, it would have been around 1.4 million square feet. Uh, it was most likely constructed with an airflow and a, and, a, and a space for light to penetrate into the ark. Um, people that have more time than me on their hands have estimated that at least 125,000 animals could have easily fit on the ark, and it only taking up about half of the space. Um, and so when you start to account for animals that are large but taking uh, smaller versions of them, when you account for a lot of the animals that we think about taking up very little space, and again, we could go through this. I don't feel like it's, it's the time or place on a Sunday morning to do it, but, but there's a lot of evidence, a lot of articles, a lot of books that could be read that would, would provide validity to the fact that this ark would have been fully capable of sustaining the life that's talked about being brought upon it. Conservative estimates even allow for that. We also know in looking at Cain's descendants that the technology was possible, Right. So these sinful descendants of Cain are masters of metal and are developing things and creating things. And Noah is able to tap into all of their technology, all of their advancements to construct this ark. It's an ark that's, that the specifications are given to Noah supernaturally. Um, and it's supernaturally given this way to preserve Noah's family. So they've done tests. And, and, and again, people that have more time on their hands than me have constructed scales, uh, like, have taken the numbers and have constructed scales uh, of arcs and put them in water and, and have basically determined that it's virtually impossible for an arc of this size to ever capsize. That the dimensions that are given, the way that the weight is distributed, that no matter how bad it got, it was not going to flip over. There's no way Noah and his limited understanding at that time and, and his mathematical training would have been able to to develop that having never really experienced anything like that. And so we have supernatural uh, blueprints given to Noah to preserve his family. It's also important to note that there's no navigational tools here included with the ark. It's a big box. 
It's a big box that's completely entrusted to the will of God. Noah has no way to steer it. He has no way to direct it. He's completely placing his family in the control of God's hands. Noah's instructed to trust God for salvation. I don't know that Noah picked up on it. Hopefully he did. Uh, But in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You're going to bring animals in with you. But the important thing here is that he is going to make a covenant, a covenant that has yet to be made with Noah. The implication here is that you're going to survive this, Noah. You're going to survive long enough for us to establish a covenant together. There was promise to Noah, not just, hey, a flood's coming and build an ark. There was promise here that you're going to be on the other side of it. You're going to survive this, and I'm going to establish a covenant with you. Nothing to fear for Noah while he's prepping the ark. And then lastly, he's instructed to gather life. He's instructed to gather the animals who too will be responsible for replenishing the earth when God's judgment is finished. Every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. We learn later on in in this as well that he's instructed to bring clean animals and unclean animals. And we've talked before as to how much knowledge there was about certain things. There's, There's evidently some understanding here about clean animals and unclean animals that has been communicated to Noah. We'll discuss that further as we get into his story. But we see God's sovereign control in the willful coming of the animals, right? So so Noah's going to be responsible for building an ark, and we're not told all the details, but it seems that the animals are going to cooperate with this process. And we know time and time again that God is sovereign over animals, but it's always a good encouraging reminder in, in incidences like this that he controls all of his creation. He controls the great seas, and uh, uh, Job and the psalmist talk about the, the seas that can't be controlled by man, God controls. Animals that can't always be controlled by man, God controls. He controls the fish that swallows Jonah. He controls the fish that eats the money that uh, the disciples pull out and are able to pay their taxes. God is sovereign over animals, and he's going to orchestrate the coming of these animals, a cooperative spirit by these animals so that they are preserved to replenish the earth. The implication here is that Noah's faith was grounded on God's word. As Noah begins to respond in faith, it's grounded on what God has communicated to him. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. So, so Noah responds with his mind. He comprehends God's instruction. But secondly, he responds with his heart. His heart. Noah feared God's judgment. He connected what he heard And he understood the ramifications. So this isn't just knowledge that Noah fills with his head. There's an emotional connection for Noah, right? So he's not guilty like we can be sometimes of sitting in a sermon, hearing truth, and it having no effect on our life. It connects for him emotionally. He understands it. He comprehends it. He doesn't have any questions at the end of it. But he doesn't walk away from the experience unchanged. It connects with him emotionally. There's fear created in Noah's heart about what is is going to happen, what's being asked of him. 
If we go back to Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. There's, there's a healthy fear here that Noah feels towards God as he constructs this ark. Now that's important because Scripture connects the importance of fear with relationship to God. This is a great passage in Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. I mean, that, that, that accurately describes Noah right there, right? He's a friend of God. Why? Because he's fearful of God. He has a covenant with God. Why? Because he's a friend of God. And a healthy fear of God led him into that friendship. And because he's now friends with God, God communicates his plans to him. Right, this is a benefit of friendship with God, is that God clues us in to how things are working. In uh, Romans eleven twenty two. Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Paul highlights the aspects that there's a, there's a kindness to God, there's a severity to God. A, a friendship with God necessitates a healthy fear of God. But as we've said, when we fear God properly, when we're friends with God, it leads us into knowing God's plans. In John chapter 15, verse 14 you are my friends if you do what I command you, talking to his disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. That's a special privilege and benefit of being in relationship with Christ, that our fear drives us to him. The friendship is established, and because we're friends with God, we get clued into his plans, and we get to participate in his plans. Noah participates in God's plans because he responded in fear to what God told him. This, uh, so Tyson and I had a, a situation come up this week where um, a, a parent contacted and was upset because something that Tyson had said in his class had called had caused her daughter to come home fearful of God in the future. Mom said, I'm not sending her there for her to be scared of God. And so knowing that I would have handled it totally differently as her pastor, played the game and, you know, appeased her and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, we'll we'll communicate better in the future. But but saw Tyson later in the in the teacher's lounge and I said, I, I hope I'm spiritually mindful enough that if my son ever expresses fear when he's been presented with God's word, that I don't try to offer earthly reassurance that he should not feel that fear. Right? As, as parents, we don't want our kids to be fearful of God, and yet we should because he's a, he's a severe God. And if we don't continue in his kindness, then, then he is a severe God. 
And so what was also encouraging is that on the test that was given based on that lesson, another girl responded and said, what what we've learned in class has made me so excited about Jesus coming back. It makes me happy. It gives me hope for the future. That's two different responses to the same lesson. One girl comes home scared. One girl respects and honors what's being talked about and yet finds the hope and encouragement that it's meant to offer to believers. So as we raise our children, we've got to communicate a healthy fear of God because he's a God that flooded the earth. And we estimated there could have been millions and billions of people on the earth at that time, and only one family is spared. He's a severe God because he's a holy God that hates sin and has to deal with sin. And Noah responds and says, God is serious about this, and I'm going to respond to this because I'm fearful of what would happen if I didn't. I'm fearful of what would happen if I did not respond. The implication here is that Noah responded, or Noah's faith rested on things not yet seen. So he's communicated things. He responds based on things that he's not yet seen, right? And this is what describes a believer and the way a believer lives his life. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, ah, that's the wrong one. Second Corinthians. No, we'll skip it. Hebrews eleven one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Noah responds on things that aren't seen yet. You'll remember Jesus highlights the fact that in the days of Noah, things were continuing like they always had. Things had not changed. They were just continuing on like they always had. People were marrying, people were giving in marriage, people were eating and drinking. Everything was normal. All things continued like normal. And for however many years it took Noah, maybe 100, maybe 120, maybe less, however long it took Noah, everything remained normal around him except for Noah. Things radically changed for Noah, even though it didn't change for anybody else, even though culture looked the same, circumstances looked the same. Noah said, I've been clued into things that have yet to be seen, and it's going to radically change how I live my life moving forward. It ought to be the same for a New Testament believer, right? We've been clued into the fact that while judgment's not coming through water, it's coming through fire, Peter tells us, and that we have a responsibility to get into Christ so that we're spared from that judgment. We'll talk more about that next week. But we've been clued into the future much like Peter has. And much like everyone else said, things are normal. Peter says in the last days, people will say, things are normal. Why are you guys all antsy and anxious about Jesus coming back? Why are you living this way? Everything looks like it's always has. There's always been wars. There's always been rumors of wars. There's always been famine. There's always been earthquakes. Why are you getting anxious about this? As believers, we're friends of God because we're fearful of God. We've been clued into the plans of God, and it should radically shape how we live for God. It radically shaped Noah's life and radically shaped the decisions that he made moving forward. Number three, his will. God's word connects with his mind. He's aware of it. Connects with him emotionally, his heart. And then it leads to his will being submitted to God. Noah responded to God's grace with faith. So his mind, Noah heard God's word. His heart, Noah feared God's judgment. His will, Noah respond, responded to God's grace with faith. He moves in obedience. I love the story of Rahab because it's real similar. 
Rahab talks to the spies. She says, I've done my homework. I know about your God. I know he's legit. I know our gods aren't. Your God terrifies me. He created everything, and he's about to wreak havoc on, on what you're calling the promised land. We call it Canaan. And rather than running from your God, she says, can I join your God? I'm scared to death of your God. The only hope I have is if he'll accept me and let me join his team, because running from him does no good. That's what, what we have here with Noah. He could try to run from this. He could try to hide from this. He says, you know what? I'm going I'm to flee to God. I'm going to flee to God. My will is going to be submitted to his plans. The implication is, is that Noah's faith moved him to obedience. The Bible says in Genesis 6 that he obeyed everything that God told him to do. Again, we're not clued into all the details. I'm sure God gave him some further instructions about how all this was supposed to happen. But in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He demonstrated his faith with his works. The word of God fell on the good soil of Noah's heart, and he demonstrated it with his works. This isn't merely an intellectual response minus the emotion or an emotional response minus the truth. God gets all of Noah here. He gets his mind, his emotions, and his will. He walked by faith, not by sight. He walked for God's glory, not self-gratification. He walked for eternity, not the here and now. The author of Hebrews says that the way he functioned after hearing from God about this was essentially a rebuke to those around him. It says, by this he condemned the world, came an heir of righteousness. Lastly here, and I think this is where we really want to finish up with, the character of Jesus, why his righteousness is better. So we've talked about Noah and how let's don't go overboard in thinking that he was such a great guy that he earned God's favor in a way that nobody else ever has. We've now highlighted what his, his, his righteousness and blamelessness meant, that he responds to God's word because God had shown him grace but again, lest we think that this story is about Noah and that we walk away talking about Noah, ultimately Noah points us to Christ. And he points us to Christ in five different ways. When we think about his righteousness in relationship to Christ's righteousness. Number one, Noah's righteousness does not save others. Noah's righteousness doesn't save others. So he could have been a righteous man, a blameless man, but at the end of the day, his righteousness does not save anyone. In Ezekiel 14, verse 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, talking about Jerusalem and the judgment coming to Jerusalem, even if these three men were in it, they would, de- they would be delivered, but their, own, by their, but their own lives, by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. It says that... If these three men were living in this city, it would not be spared because of their righteousness. I'm not going to save the people of Jerusalem because Noah and Daniel and these guys live there. Because I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to spare them because of Noah, Daniel, and Job. Their response to God saves them. Saves them. Doesn't save others. The life that they lived in response, their, their, their works being demonstrated by their faith, saves them. Doesn't save anyone else. He reiterates that fact in verse 20. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. 
It's a righteousness. It's a response to God that saved them but doesn't save others. And yet we serve a Jesus whose righteousness is made available to others. It's why his righteousness is better. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Noah's personal righteousness insufficient for anybody else. He has the same righteousness we have. It comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteousness is better. Secondly, Noah's righteousness is the same righteousness that we possess by faith. All right, Noah gets his righteousness the same way we do by faith. Hebrews eleven seven says that. He didn't earn righteousness. He didn't do enough good things to become righteous. He got his righteousness by faith. Jesus gets his righteousness through obedience. Jesus comes and lives perfectly for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, Noah's righteousness comes through faith because Noah was offering sacrifices because he was a failure. Jesus comes and does what our flesh cannot do, and that's obey God. He comes and he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. Why? So that every believer can receive the righteousness that they're incapable of earning themselves. Jesus accomplishes that. He's better. His righteousness is better because it can be shared with others. Why? Because it's not by faith. He accomplished righteousness through his life. Number three, Noah was viewed as the rest provider by Lamech. Remember, his dad had this hope that Noah was going was to provide rest. And he provided rest in some senses, but Jesus is the ultimate rest provider. Jesus comes in a greater way than Noah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. Matthew, Jesus talks about the rest that he offers. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What kind of rest does he offer us? He offers us the rest that we don't work for our salvation, that salvation has been accomplished for us. It means that every day that I wake up and I strive to live faithfully, At the end of the day, my hope doesn't crumble when I look back and see my failures. That I'm redirected to the fact that Jesus lived every single day perfectly. And that my righteousness has been acquired by faith, not how I live Monday tomorrow. That my righteousness is given to me by faith. Ultimately, Jesus comes to give us rest from the curse, something that Noah never could. Number four, Noah was used to save creation. He preserves creation in the ark, but Jesus comes to set creation free, Romans 8 tells us. Noah preserves it. He saves it. But when creation walks off the ark, creation once again deteriorates because it's cursed by sin. Romans 8 says creation is waiting, not for Noah, 
It's not longing and waiting for an ark and a flood. Creation is longing and waiting for Jesus to come back and set it free from the bondage that it was subjected to. And then lastly, number, number five, Noah offers sacrifices to God. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 8 that he, that he offers sacrifices to God that are pleasing in their aroma to God. Once again, evidence that he's not perfect because he's offering sacrifices. And, and yet what we find here in Ephesians 5, 2, that Jesus doesn't offer sacrifices. He offers himself. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus is better than Noah because he doesn't offer sacrifices. He offers himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is better because he doesn't weather the judgment of God. He becomes the judgment of God. So Noah preserved in the ark while God's judgment rains down around him. Jesus is better because he... He steps in and becomes the object of God's judgment for us, to spare us from the judgment that we deserve. Noah could never do that. Noah could never stand in our place. Therefore, Jesus is better. Application, something that I want you to think about as we leave today, and we'll wrap up with this. As I was studying and reading about Noah in in Hebrews, it, it drew my attention again to the others that are contained there in Hebrews. And what you find when you read through Hebrews 11 is that faith always expresses itself in a way that costs the possessor something. Like when you read about these men that demonstrated faith, and they demonstrated their faith by their works, James talks about that being necessary, the type of things that are attributed to them are things that cost them something. Now, we think about Noah and we think, well, look, the guy got special revelation. A flood was coming. What else was he going to do? Not build an ark? And yet we should pause and think about what it cost Noah. He probably had to sell everything. He probably had to make some extreme changes in his life because I can guarantee you there's not anybody that I'm aware of um, in our in our church family that could just tomorrow decide to build a 1.4 million square foot house, essentially. None of us could afford to do that, right? And so we think, well, he just went down to the lumber shop and picked up some lumber and built an ark. No, he got rid of everything, right? Like, like this was a major shift in the direction his life was going. It wasn't that they just continued to hang out as a family and do their normal things, and then on the weekends he would tinker in the garage and build a boat. It cost him everything, something that he couldn't yet see, right? The things that are not seen is how he lived his life moving forward. It cost him everything. And imagine the time that it cost him. I mean, he invested everything in this hope that the rains really were coming and that this ark was really going to hold up. See, when we're taught this, this story as a kid, we think, oh, this was easy. Like, he just went outside and built an ark. Maybe, maybe endured a little bit of ridicule from his buddies making fun of him. No, this was, this was huge financial ramifications for Noah. Cost him everything. Invested everything believing that it was going to pay off. And I'm sure he asked the question time and time again, am I wasting myself? Am I wasting my life by doing this? Have I wasted my money? Have I wasted my life building something? 
A.W. Pink says, a faith that does not uh, issue in that which is costly is not worth much. A faith that doesn't cost you something is not worth much. So, so I've been asking myself this question since yesterday. If my name was listed amongst the greats of Hebrews 11, what would be the great expression of my faith? Because I profess to believe, but how do I justify my claim? So, so at the end of my life, if somebody were to, to decide to go back and revise Hebrews 11 and update it and include my name in it, by faith Noah, by faith Abel, by faith all these individuals, by faith Adam, dot, 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 what would be included there? What would be included there? Anything that demonstrates my faith or is my only claim to my faith that I go to church sometimes, I read my Bible sometimes, give some money to the church sometimes. Like, is that my big claim to faith that, yes, I'm a Christian, and then the things that I list off are very just just unmemorable. Now, now, and I'm not saying... Hey, everybody needs to go out and try to just create something great to do this week that, that would be awesome to write about in Hebrews 11. But what I've been asking myself and challenging myself is I don't want to miss the opportunity that comes my way where I'm supposed to express my faith and I bail on it and say, nah, that's not for me. Because right now in our church, we're asking some big things with our goals, Right? We're asking some big things, and I believe that there are going to be people in our church that if we were to write our version of Hebrews 11, it would say, by faith, blank and blank, when they were young and didn't have kids yet, quit their jobs, sold their house, moved to Uganda, when they didn't know anything about church planting, left everything behind, and built a church overseas. Like, I believe there's going to be people in our church that that could be written about. And so my challenge to you is I want you thinking in these terms, not because I want you to go create an expression of faith. Like, I don't want you to, to think that, okay, I'm going to go out and do something crazy that just seems ridiculous to everybody and, and make that my claim to faith. But I want to challenge you that you don't miss the opportunity that comes your way to express your faith because you lack faith. See, Noah had an opportunity proposed to him, and he said, you know what? I'm all in on this. I've heard it. I understand it. You've clued me into your plans. Because here's the thing. You've been clued into the plans of God that, that, that sharing Christ to the ends of the earth is part of his plans, and so we're presenting an opportunity here in our church to do that. We're asking people, and not quickly. We're asking people hesitantly, knowing because it's a big request, but we are asking people to quit jobs and to sell possessions and to commit their life for an extended period of time to go overseas and build a church in Uganda where the name of Jesus is not being proclaimed. We're asking people to, to up the ante a little bit in our church and to embrace leadership responsibility so that we can plan another church in this area so that more people can come to Christ, right? Because today we've, we've got some seats left, but there's coming a point where we're not going to have any seats left. And we can either just stop and pause and say, this is it. This is what we are. Or we can say, you know what? We're going to send some of you away so we can fill up another building with people to hear about Jesus. So I want you to leave today thinking through Noah's expression of faith in Hebrews 11 and your own expression of faith moving forward with your life as well.
Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you right now. We want to praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that we've been able to to dig deep into this passage of scripture, a passage, a story that we've heard since we were children. But as we've matured and grown up, it has bigger implications for us than it did when we were kids. And God, I'm thankful that this story points us to Jesus. A Jesus who is far better than this this story of Noah. God, we celebrate and, and, and thank you today for Christ the Messiah. A Messiah who 2,000 years ago rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. To the joy of the people there. And God, we... We turn our attention to that and we praise you and thank you, realizing that Jesus is worthy of that type of worship. Because he's attained a righteousness that we could never attain. Father, we thank you for a king who came as a servant to live a humble, faithful, obedient life. That our flesh, our personal flesh is too weak to accomplish. And God, we're thankful today for those of us that are believers that we leave today knowing that we are righteous in your eyes. Not because we've earned that, but because you showed favor to us. That you, you, you graced us with your righteousness. But Father, as we leave today, I pray that in the same way Noah demonstrated the grace that you had given him, the salvation that you had given to him, he demonstrated that with his life. A life that cost him much. A life that he was willing to sacrifice for because he had seen the unseen. And God, I pray that we would be clued into the fact that we too have seen the unseen. You have clued us into your plans. We know that you're coming back. And scripture would say soon. At any point. And so God, with that knowledge, with that head knowledge, I pray that it would connect with our hearts. There would be a healthy fear. A healthy fear knowing that you have demonstrated kindness to us, that you have called us to be friends with you, but that that fear of the coming judgment would dictate how we live every single day. And God, I pray that you would provide opportunities for our church people that require a big demonstration of faith. God, we're not looking to to generate and create opportunities for us to get glory with anything. God, I would, I would venture to say that the people listed in Hebrews 11, the things that you brought to their life were not things that they went looking for nor desired. And yet when they came their way, they responded because they were grounded in your word. And they were looking to respond in faith every single day. And so, God, I pray that you would bring opportunities our way that would cause us to respond in faith. And if so, be it that you would bring such big things that would warrant being written about. That by faith, individuals of Sovereign Hope Church did big things for you, for your glory, for your honor. We praise you in advance for those things. We thank you for including us in your plans. Pray that we would be faithful this week to extend your glory in the context that you've placed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. 
Again, that's www.sobhope.org. Thank you.